Good morning. Today, Bezat Hashem, we'll be learning Daf Samech Tesin, Maseches Ksubos. We were supposed to not be learning today, but we get a bonus episode today because the trip to Israel didn't exactly, was, it was in my plans, but it was not in Hashem or United's plans. I'm not putting Hashem with United, but you know what I mean. Okay. So now we begin at the very top line of Samech Tesin Medalev. We talked about like this. It's an interesting idea that a, a woman, right, a girl, we'll call her, her father wants to give her two things, right? He wants to, he wants to give her a dowry, right? And he wants to also support her. And so we're learning Masechus Ksubis, as you might recall. And so when a man writes a Ksuba for a woman, in that Ksuba he writes that, by the way, I will support you and also your your children, you know, until they until they reach a certain age, will be supported. Such that even when he passes away, right, his estate will support those children and will provide a dowry for those for those girls that she has. Okay, so those obligations that he would do when he's alive, namely for any girls that he would have, he would support. He would give them a dowry and support support those girls, right? He would want to do that when he's alive. And the estate is thus going to be doing that once he passes away. So the question is, when he passes away, right? When, and the, and so let's say he passes away and he has girls and boys with said wife, right? And in the Ksuba, he said that he was going to support them. Now, when we say that the estate is going to support the girls, so who's being, who's really supporting them? So the widow and, and, the, and the children, right? So the brothers of, this, of these little girls, so let's say the person Rahman al-Aslan leaves over a little girl, so now the brothers are going to be taking on the responsibility of giving this girl her dowry and also giving her her mizonos, right? Supporting her until a certain age. Now, yesterday's discussion had a few you know, wrinkles to it. For example, the idea that what was the... Uh, most typical amount, and we said that that was 10%. And then we said, wait a minute, what if he's, you know, one of these really unfortunate cases where there's many, many children, young children left, and so now you have 10, what, it, what is it going to be? You have 10 girls left over and five boys, and every one of the 10 girls is going to get a dowry of 10%, and that means that the entire estate is going to be consumed, and the boys won't have any Yerusha whatsoever. And the answer is, well, no, you give 10%, and then you give 10% of what's left, and then 10% of what's left, 10% of what's left, and whoever is left at the time, they all pull it together and they, and they split it together. So if it was 10 girls, it comes out to 65%. Whatever it may be, that's, that's, one, that's one of the wrinkles. Anyways, that was the discussion yesterday. So now in the very first word on Samach Tesem at Alphan Top, it says, Talalei Rav Rabbi Bene Chite. This in itself is an interesting line worthy of discussion. Bein uh, technically means between the lines. Okay, so talei rav l'rabi bein Rav, another thing about it here that this is uh, that that's fascinating is Rav. You know, we used to say we say Tana Upalig. Rav was a, an Amora, right? Rav Shmuel were Amoraim. Rabbi Yochanan was an Amora, as we will discuss over here. But even though Rav was uh, an Amora, he was for the first of the Amoraim. And he, in fact, used to be uh, in contact with the latest Tanaim 
Okay, so here we have Rav interacting with Rebbe, and he's asking a question, as the first Rashi says in Samachtes Hashitim. Fascinating thing. And Igeres Shlomim is like Shalom. He's saying, he's sending him a hi, how do you do? Notice. And in between the lines, he's asking him a question. What is in between the lines? The Mepharshim explained a bunch of different things. One of the possible explanations is that this was during the time, right? Right when Torah uh, Shabbat was still, right, a little bit, they were apprehensive about committing it to writing. So they wouldn't really write it up uh, explicitly, but they were already writing it between the lines, right? One, uh, once Torah Shabbat was uh, only in the infancy of being committed to writing. Be that as it may, there was a question between the lines that Rav asked Rebbe as follows. Here's what's the question. Okay, so what would be the case as follows? We just talked about and described the scenario where the brothers are now uh, going to, let's say we're talking about the Mazonos and the dowry, right? What if they already had pre-existing, right, um, right, financial responsibilities, financial commitments? And so would they be able to go now collect from what we would call Lekucho, Lekuchos, right? Would they be able uh, to collect um, from Lekuchos, from properties that already they owed money to in order to pay these da- said dowries? So, have a Yosef or Bichia, Kamei. Rabbi is sitting in front of Rebbe when Rebbe got the letter. And he sees Rebbe's opening this letter. He sees this question between the lines in Amarlai. And he asks Rebbe, Machoro Omishkino. Wait a minute, what are they saying? Do they mean, when they say that the brothers had properties, right, that they had already uh, committed, so do they mean properties that they already sold or that they, Mishkinu was, mean, would mean like they gave us a mashkon, right, that they, that they gave to somebody as collateral. So again, the scenario is as follows. You have the brothers, they have, they have money, right, or they have land. And so whatever, so let's say they have land and so they say, I want to borrow a loan, here's their collateral. Or they say, here's the land I'm going to sell to you. This is all land that they acquired after their father died. So is that land, right, is that land already pre-committed to the dowry? So I'll say it outside. We already said that there's two different things. That there's the dowry that, a, that a, uh, the father would pay and then there's the ongoing Right, support that they would give to, to, the, um, to their children. I would say as follows. If you're just going to ask me, nobody's, you know, Rav asked Rebbe, he didn't ask me. But if you ask me, one could see, right, the logic is that a dowry is something that's always understood uh, that is a fixed, so to speak, a fixed amount. It's like 10%, whatever it is. But that dowry is something that uh, predates Right, that that's something that he always had in mind that he would have a dowry, so some amount set aside for each of the girls. So maybe that dowry was understood to be in effect right prior to the sale or the giving as collateral of any of the lands. Um, however, the ongoing support. So you can't just say I'm I can't do any commerce and I can't do any business because I have to support these girls. I mean meaning obviously supporting the girls is a priority. If you have no food then you're not going to give and you're not going to give all your money away or give it as collateral. But assuming you can afford it, right? The support isn't something that's 
like a pre-existing lien on all of your properties that you're trying to live a life where you both do the business and you're supporting. So my point is that the obligation to support, because it's less finite, or because it's uh, less finite, it's sort of like this ongoing obligation where you do the commerce and you continue to support the girls. Whereas a dowry is a little bit more of a finite thing where it's like a one-time expense. Like what, that's what I'm saying. When you go to an accountant, so, and he wants to sort of map out your financial future. So he, he doesn't ask you, you know, what do you necessarily, he doesn't ask you how much do you, um, you know, uh, intend on spending on groceries. Like, are you going to buy a tuna fish? Or are you going to buy, you know, or, or, or what are you going to buy for Shabbos? He's, but he does ask you, are you going to have any of these big expenses that you're going to be setting aside, right, upcoming, like you're going to be making any weddings, and let's just budget that in. Right? So even though you might budget your daily allowance, I could see how the big one-time big expense would be something that would be pre-existing prior to this, uh, right, this commerce that they're going to do. Be that as it may, what was not clear to Rebbechia was, are we talking about brothers that sold the properties or gave them as collateral? Right? Because the language of the question was Shia Badu, that they somehow right, committed but they didn't say, did they commit in the form of selling the land or in this form of giving it as collateral? So Amar Leis, Rabbi said to him, Mayanaf Kamina. What would be the difference? Bein machur, bein shemishkenu, it motzim lefarnasav, ein motzim lemezonos. In other words, what Rabbi answered Rob was that it shouldn't matter. That what matters here is whether we collect from the dowry or we collect for mezonos. So as we see, Rabbi agrees with me. In other words... Rebbe says that you do, right, take from Lekuchos for, Parnasa means the dowry. So you do take for Lekuchos for what would be the dowry, because that's a pre-existing condition, we'll call it. The Ein Motzin Limizonos. But you do not collect for Lekuchos in order to support them and, you know, feed them during the right course of a regular life. And what Rebbe is pointing out to Rebbe is that that doesn't really matter whether you gave it, whether you sold away those lands or you gave it as a collateral, it wouldn't make a difference. The halacha would be the same. So what Rebbe is saying to Rebbe is, why are you asking me whether the question was machor or mishkino? Really, the halacha would be the same whether machor or mishkino, namely, the halacha would be that motzin for the dowry, but you don't take out a lukuchos for the mizonos. Okay, so that was the answer that uh, Rebbe gave to, to Rav. Now, the question the Gemara asks now is, why did Rav say Shibadu? Why did Rav ask the question in such a way that Rav Chia didn't know what he meant? Says the Gemara, Rav, I machu kami The question the Gemara wants to know is, what was Rav asking? In other words, we know that Rebbe holds that the halacha would be the same whether the brothers had sold or given away the land as collateral. But the question is, which one of them was Rav Mo curious about when he used the Lashon Shibadu, that they committed it to it? So, in other words, he should have asked, if he wanted to know about Machru, why didn't he say Machru? If he wanted to know about Mishkan, why didn't he say Mishkan? Why did he use the word Shibud? So the Gemara answers, very simply, Rav was being economical. In other words, he didn't want to use too many words. And again, this could relate back to the apprehension that they had with writing Torah Shabbat Alpeh. And so they wanted to, maybe, right? So they wanted to be very economical, or maybe because he was writing between the lines, whatever that means, uh, in the context of the way they used to write with cloth and, and, uh, and tied together, cloth, okay, sewn together. Be that as it may, like my answers, that he was being economical, and by asking Shibadu, he was 
acknowledging that the halacha would be the same, whether the brothers had sold or given said properties as, as, as collateral. As follows, says the Gemara, Rav, Tervayu, coming by lay. Rav was asking both. Right? In other words, he wanted to be economical. He was only going to use one word. He was either going to ask Machru, or he was going to ask Mishkanu, or he could ask both by being clever and using the word Shiabdu, which implies both. Now, if he had only written Machru, says the Gemara, In other words, if he had only wrote Machru, so he could say, okay, he, and, and I'll say it outside first, if you sell the land, so obviously it's a bigger chiddush that you could take it out, right? In other words, if one gives something as collateral, and you could say, hey, by the way, my, my sister just got engaged. They got to take this collateral back. So that's like more understandable than if you sold it already. And you say, hey, my sister just got engaged. I know I sold this to you, but now I have to take it back. So it's obviously a bigger chiddush to say that you're going to extract back that which you already sold. Okay, that's what the Gemara is going to say. Had he just said, Machru, Hanicha right? And then you say, okay, I could take it back from who he, I could take the land back from who I already sold it to, Kolshkein Mishkino. And certainly, right, the halacha would be that I'd be able to take back a collateral, right, if I was one of the brothers. However, Ishalachli, Ein Motsian. However, if the Remember, when, when Rav wrote to Rebbe, he didn't know what the answer was going to be. So if Rebbe had said, yes, you can collect, then he would have known, and he would have asked Maharu, then he would have known for sure that he could take back a mashkon, a collateral. However, if Rebbe would have answered, right? if Rebbe would have answered, you cannot collect from Lukuchos, he still would not have known. Well, I can't collect from Lakuchos, but maybe that's because I already sold it. Maybe I would be able to collect back a mashkon. So that's why he didn't ask what the halacha was when he sold it. And conversely, if he had written, hey, what's the halacha with regards to collateral? So if he said, you can't collect back a collateral, so I would have known, well, if I can't take back a collateral, I certainly can't take back something which I already sold. However, he shalachli motzin, but if he's told me, yes, you could t- take back your collateral, so akati machru kami bayle, so then it certainly would not necessarily be obvious, one could have argued. I could take back a collateral, I can't, but I can't take back something which I already sold. So therefore, said Rav to himself, when he asked the question, he said, echtov le shiabdu. I'll ask him shiabdu. I committed it. And that would have implied both demash mahachi mash mahachi. That question was a clever way of asking. If you're going to assume that he's only going to ask, one word, the word shiabdu, is going to uh, encompass both collateral and encompass as well selling off the land. What would be the halacha in both? Now, as Rashi points out, the answer would have still potentially required uh, a, a split if there was, in fact, a split. In other words, as it turns out, Rebbe held that the halacha is, is the same for both, and it doesn't matter whether it's a mashkon or a mecher, and therefore the answer was the same for both, that the distinction is not between collateral and selling off. Rather, the distinction is whether it's a dowry or it was support. That was the halacha of Rebbe. Um, But had Rebbe held that there was a difference, in fact, between collateral and selling off, as Rebchia suggests, then he would have had to write, he would have had to write that explicitly. But, you know, uh, Rav was assuming the Rebbe understood that distinction, and therefore, that when he writes, you know, what would be the, the halacha in Shiabdu, so he assumed that if there was indeed a difference, that uh, Rav, that Rebbe would uh, had answer him accordingly. Okay. So anyway, as we've said, 
Rabbi holds there's no difference between Machar or Mishkan. The difference is the dowry is a pre-existing condition that you can collect. The ongoing support is not a pre-existing condition and therefore you cannot collect that from Lekuchos. However, says the Gemara, there's a Nemora that disagrees. Six lines up from the wide. Meaning, whether it's for a dowry or for ongoing right, uh, support, you can't collect either one from either Lekuchos or Mashkon, right? You can't, you can't take that back for the dowry, in other words. And this also makes sense, Barry. I could say logically, you know, my sister's getting married. Okay, wonderful. So we want to give her a dowry or we want to continue to support her, whatever the case may be. It's from whatever money we have. In other words, life goes on. We continue to our usual commerce and business dealings. And whatever we have left over, just as if, would, uh, this is what our father would do too, by the way, right? Our father wouldn't halt all business activities because he's saving for the dowry. He would give dowry based on whatever he has, right, available at the time. So anyways, that is the sheet of Rabbi Yochanan. There is a discussion here that the great Rafiomi master, Rabbi Leibowitz, will discuss with respect to how could Rabbi Yochanan really disagree? What do you mean, Rabbi Yochanan? Did he know? And that's really what the Gemara is going to discuss uh, over here, but the Gemara asks it in a different way. The question is, how could Rabbi Yochanan disagree with Rebbe? So we'll get into that in a minute. After all, one was a Tana and one was an Amora. I'll say it outside first since I just brought it up. It, it's, we're going to see it in, in a minute. And that is, we usually say Rav Tanahu Palig. We've seen that many times. That Rav ha- was in the habit of occasionally arguing with the Tanaim. He was an early Amora with that kind of tremendous authority. Now Rabbi Yochanan was the Gadol of Eretz Yisrael, and nobody could say that they had more authority than Rabbi Yochanan. Simply, Rabbi Yochanan uh, would not argue on that which was already in the Mishnah. And so um, Rabbi Leibowitz points out that there is a distinction. Once the Mishnayas were codified, so to speak, were already organized, written down, so then basically Rav would be the only Amara who said, you know, I could still argue. But those Mishnayas were agreed upon by all Tanaim. They were like voted on but universally by the rabbis. So therefore, those were so well edited and seen by everyone that it was almost like, we'll give a shout out to Art Scroll and Rav Melinowitz Zetzal. It's almost like, well, Art Scroll says this, so you should take it very seriously, Lahavdil, right? Our modern day version. Because it was so many eyes, so many rabbis looked at it, and it was meant to be sort of like a consensus. Be that as it may, uh, these statements of Rebbe that he wrote in a private letter to, uh, to Rav, so that was not a Mishnah. This is just a statement, something that he wrote in a, in a Igeres Shalom, right? In a private, right, uh, in a private letter. And so those things that are written in a private letter sometimes are not necessarily meant to not be argued upon in the same way. They may not have the same amount of authority, and therefore you could see how Rabbi Yochanan might, maybe would argue on Rabbi Shita. That's what it looks like, right? It looks like Rabbi Yochanan doesn't hold like Rabbi. But the Gemara actually asks a question along those lines as follows. It says the Gemara, right? So the fact that we have this possibility. The question is, did he not, did he not hear what Rabbi Yitzhak was? that you can collect from the da- for the dowry, but you can't collect for Mizonos, or uh, 
and, 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 is, and is the issue that he had not heard it, had he heard it, he would have agreed or accepted Rebbe's Psaq. Or maybe Rabbi Yochanan was in fact aware of the Psaq of Rebbe, but simply he did not accept it. So that's where it fits to talk about, you know, whether Rabbi Yochanan had the authority to not accept Rebbe's Psaq. And what we're saying now is that perhaps it, he had that authority because of the fact that this is not Rebbe's Psaq in the Mishnah, but rather in a private correspondence. Be that as it may, the Gemara tries to prove in an interesting way that Rabbi Yochanan must have known. Uh, he must have been aware of Rebbe's Shita and simply proposed his own Shita, namely that Echad Zeve Echad Ze'in Motsim, as follows. Says the Gemara, Tashma, De'itmar. We have the following halacha. Misha meis v'nechshtei bano suven. Suppose a person died and there's two right girls and a boy left. V'kadmer v'shon v'nadla isur nechasim. The isur nechasim here is the dowry because as we mentioned yesterday, that was the typical, it's not necessarily on the level of a chiv, but that was the typical amount that was usually given and certainly if he had already given to the previous daughters and or if he, had, or he hadn't stated the exact amount, that was the presumed amount. So, the first daughter, right, gets married. The oldest daughter, let's say, she gets married before her sister takes the, the typical requisite tenth for the dowry. And before the second daughter goes over and gets, starts getting and gets married and collects a dowry, her brother died, right? So the brother dies between the wedding of the first and the second sister. So what happens? Fascinating case. When the brother dies, the estate now, right, falls to the two sisters, okay? So now, the first sister had already collected a, her dowry. So let's say there was a $100,000 estate. So the first daughter had collected $10,000. And now, the rest of the estate falls to them. So presumably, what would happen now, well, one of two things. Either the, well, the most logical thing that would happen would be like the $90,000 that's left would be split to the two daughters, Right, and therefore one gets forty-five, one gets forty-five, which means that the oldest sister, having already collected her dowry, would get fifty-five thousand dollars, and the younger one gets forty-five thousand dollars. Okay, another possible thing that you could do is say, wait a minute, oh, now the brother died, and the second girl does she get her dowry first up front? That would mean that the second sister is going to get her ten thousand dollars, and now the remaining eighty thousand dollars gets split in half. In which case, both would equitably get. $50,000, the 10000 original dowry, and then the splitting of the remaining 80000 Would that be how we do it? Although, Barrett, right, because remember, we're only going to give, you could say that she should get 10% of the 90, and in which case she would get 9, and then maybe they would split the remaining 81. But, okay, so we could talk about that detail, because that's probably more correct. That's probably more accurate. But be that as it may, the, re- the real fundamental question that we're asking here, good morning, is... Are we splitting, giving the dowry up front and then splitting it? Or are we just going to split the estate and have the dowry be subsumed, the second, right, sister's dowry be subsumed in the split of the estate? Which is to say, because she's already getting, like, her half of the estate, because she's getting $45,000, so she should just take her dowry, you know, from the remaining $45,000. A simpler way of asking the question is, once you already getting your Yerusha, do you, right, take the dowry out first before you split the Yerusha, or do you say, listen, you got your Yerusha, take your dowry from there? <coughs> so the answer that they used to say is, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Paskin, Shnia Vitra. Shnia Vitra means that the second sister forfeits the dowry. 
which is another way of saying, once she's already getting her share of the estate, she's no longer expecting an, a dowry on top of that. She's not taking a dowry and then splitting the estate. She's allowing the dowry to be subsumed in the estate. Okay, so now, in the context of challenging Rabbi Yochanan, it sounds like he was aware of Rabbi. In other words, I'm a Rabbi Hanina. Rabbi Hanina challenged Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Hanina said, Gedula mizu amru. We have, right, we have an even greater chiddush than this. Because Rabbi, don't forget, says that we can collect a dowry. When it comes to dowry, we say that we can even collect it from the kuchos. Wait a minute. So if that's true, so then this halacha of Rabbi Yochanan is an even greater chiddush. In other words, Rebbe's already allowing us to take a dowry from lands that we already sold. And here, it looks like we don't even collect the dowry from Yerusha, right? In other words... The Allah of Rabbi Yochanan and the Allah of Rebbe seem to be even further apart, further apart than we realized, according to Rabbi Hanina. Because Rabbi Hanina is saying that, that whereas, Reb, whereas Rabbi Yochanan isn't allowing the second sister to collect from her own Yerusha prior to splitting the Yerusha, Rebbe had an even bigger Chiddush. He said that you can even collect from the dowry, not only from the Yerusha, but from somebody that you'd already sold the land to. That's a way bigger Kiddush. That's what we're about to read inside. I'm Rebchanina. Gedolam is We have a way bigger Kiddush in the name of Rebbe, right? Which is Motsin Lefarnasa Vein Motsin Lemazonos. That was the Allah of Rebbe. Ve'ata March Nia Vitra. And you, Rabbi Yochanan, are, are, are going to Paskin that you can't even collect from your own Yerusha before splitting it up? So now the Gemara develops the proof in a fascinating way. It says, Ve'im Isa. And if it's true, that Rabbi Yochanan had not heard this halacha from Rabbi, namely man amra, then Rabbi Yochanan would have said, right? Because Rabbi Hanina didn't say who the author of that opinion of Magbin, right? Motzin lefarnasavim, Motzin lezonus was. He just said, you know, we already learned that. If Rabbi Yochanan was not aware, he would have said, what do you mean? Where did you learn that? In other words, Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi are so far apart that Rabbi Hanina questions Rabbi Yochanan's shita, right? The Rabbi Yochanan would have freaked out, so to speak, had he not been already aware that that cheetah existed. And the fact that Rabbi Yochanan did not freak out must be an indication that he was aware that Rabbi's cheetah existed. Again, the question that we really are trying to ask is, was, even, was Rabbi Yochanan aware of Rabbi's cheetah? And the answer is, he must have been aware, because otherwise this question of Rabbi Hanina would have really moved the needle for him and spurred him on to ask, who said that? The Gemara then says, not necessarily, not necessarily. Why? Because it could be that the reason Rabbi Yochanan was so calm when Rabbi Hanina proposed this question was for a different reason. And that reason being, there's a really big difference between um, a uh, lakuchos and a girl that inherits uh, her, her father's estate and then takes a dowry from there. I'll say it outside first. The difference being, maybe even though she's really entitled to a dowry, right? And therefore, and therefore, maybe she'd be able to take from the kuchos, but that does not necessarily mean that she's going to pre, uh, take pre-tax dollars, so to speak, from the Yerusha, because after all, she's getting a Yerusha. So in other words, to say, in other words, even though her right to the dowry is very strong, so strong, according to Rebbe, that she can even take it from pre-existing, right, the kuchos, still, 
she's getting it after all. And that doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to take it off the top before they split her Yerusha. Those are two different scenarios. In other words, we're very concerned that she gets a dowry. But we're not so concerned that she gets a dowry with pre-tax dollars, you know, before you split the Yerusha. That's a different concern, right? That's a con- that you're still getting the dowry anyway in that scenario. So that's what the Gemara says. It says, It could be that, that uh, Rabbi Yochanan had not heard of this halacha of Rabbi, but he wasn't concerned. And when he, when he heard Rebbe's halacha, he accepted anyway. In other words, we just assumed, Rebbe Yochanan assumed, that Rebbe Yochanan and Rebbe's shitas are so far apart as we described. However, maybe they're not as far apart at all. That maybe, in fact, Rebbe Yochanan certainly would be concerned that the girl gets her dowry. However, but the case where she inherits her, her father's estate, she has revach besa. She has ample right profits from the actual inheritance. And therefore, after all, she's getting half the inheritance. So she's getting so much money, let her take the dowry from there. Rabbi Yochanan's not concerned. Okay. On that last point, would you therefore say, in other words, Rabbi Yemar is asking a fascinating question, saying, wait a minute, you're saying that any time a girl somehow comes about money, we're no longer concerned about a dowry? So what if she finds, right, um, like five, $500,000 in, wow. in an envelope in the street? Wow. Would you say if she finds a metzia of a lot of, that's worth a lot of money, would you say, oh, well, now she has a lot of money. Now that she found money somehow, we don't have to give her a dowry anymore? In other words, the question is, dowry, we don't like look at the girl's bank account and, and, depend, and decide based on her bank account whether she should take the money, whether we should give her a dowry or not. We give a dowry irrespective of how much money the girl has. So that's what Rabbi Yemar is asking Ravashi. Why are you saying that Rabbi Yochanan would accept Rabbi's psaq and still, right, uh, and still be okay, right, with his own psaq that, that the girl takes the money out of her, out of her dowry? What is the, gets the money out of her inheritance, rather? What is the difference how much money she has? There's a dowry, and that was promised in the Ksuba, and that dowry should be paid to the girl regardless of how much money she has. Says the Gemara, Amar Lei, Ravashi said, no, 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 no. Whether she finds a Metsiya or not, I get it. It's not a, but it's not really a question of how much money she has in the bank account, but rather, where is she getting the money for the dowry in the case that Rabbi Yochanan discussed? She's getting it from the inheritance, right? So, so in other words, the dowry is coming out of the inheritance. So even though it's true that it doesn't matter how much money she has in the bank account beforehand, what matters is that the dowry comes out of the inheritance. And therefore, once the inheritance goes down, it either way is coming out of there, and therefore that is why Rabbi Yochanan feels comfortable poskening that when she inherits the money, she'll just take the money out of that. And she's going to forfeit, right, taking the dowry with what I'm calling pre-tax dollars. She's going to forfeit taking the dowry prior to splitting the inheritance, but that's because the money's coming out of the inheritance anyway, not because she's rich, right? It's coming out of the inheritance anyway, and therefore that's where the dowry should come out of as well. Okay, so now three lines. Isn't that money from heaven that says here, enjoy your money and let them pay for your dowry? You know, I've heard a, a great story from Rabbi Maruk about from Rabbi Palm, and it's a Garanowitz Musser moment. <laughs> you know, if you find money and it has no seed money whatsoever, you're allowed to keep it. So a girl found money and had no seed money whatsoever. He was talking about how we should care for one another. Wow. So the girl found money and asks him, I found $5 in the street. What's the halacha? He said, who are you going to return to? He said, I have no idea. It has no seed money on it. 
he said to her, the halacha is that it's yours because even if, right, even the person who lost it wouldn't be able to identify it. So she said, oh, great, I'm going to go to the candy store. He said, do me a favor. Go to the candy store next week because, you know, as happy as you are that you found this $5, there's somebody out there that's sad that they lost their $5. Wow. And you should be sensitive to that. Beautiful, and, there, and, and so that is, right, that is Lefnim Ashur Sadim. Wow. There you go. So three lines down in the wide. Amar Meimar, Bas Yeresh What's going on here? It's a question of what is the me- mechanics of a daughter's right to his father to her father's estate. In other words, we already said that we assume that the father would have wanted to give her the money. But does that mean that that one tenth is an inheritance, or is it something else? What else would it be? It could be a balchov. Rashi discusses the possibilities and how that works. Because after all. A a uh, a yoresh and a balchov have two different halachas. For example, when a person is a balchov, he has to swear that he didn't already collect, and then he gets the value. However, they want to give him the value. They give him money. They can give him the ziburis, the worst kind of land. This is what Rashi's explaining, right? That's when a person's a balchov. All you have to do with a balchov, first of all, the balchov has to swear they didn't already collect, and secondly, right, you have to. You have to. You can give it to him in any way, in any denomination, so to speak, that you want to give it to him. Whereas a yoresh, right? He's inheriting a land. He's getting. He's inheriting a piece of the estate. And the way the halacha of inheritance work is that he's inheriting a a piece of the estate like everyone else, equitably. So if there's like good lands and bad lands, he's going to get a portion of everything, and he doesn't have to swear to get it. He just gets it. So the question is: this this daughter is dowry. Is that coming in the form of an inheritance? that she could just collect from any, from, from like all the lands equitably? Or does it come in the form of a chov, right? In which case it is going to be, she's going to have to swear for it and collect it. Now, how could it be a chov? Well, if, so, so it's like this. If the father owes it to her directly, owed it to her directly, it would be a, uh, which would it be? Whether the father or the brothers owe it to her. So let's see inside in the Gemara. Are you saying that if the brothers want to give her money instead, that they can't do that? Right? That, if that was the case, that would be an indication that, that, she's, that it's a chov, not a Yerusha. So Amarlay, in. Yeah, that's what I mean. That it's, not, that it's not a chov, it's a Yerusha, and therefore the brothers would not be able to just give her, pay her off. Wait a minute. Shervashi asks, so, what if they want to give her from any one of the lands, as one could do with the Balchov? Is it true that they, that they can't, right, oust her from that? So, Amr said, in. Right, they can't compel her to uh, even accept a specific plot of land, right? It has to be an equitable, right, uh, inheritance, which is clearly a sign that it's an inheritance, okay? So, it sounds like Amemar. Right, says that she is a Yoreshes, whereas Ravashi is saying that she is clearly a Balaschov. And therefore, right, he's clearly uh, saying the, the opposite of what we said. That in fact, she could collect from, you could pay her off with any land or even with money. Says the Gemara, not only did Ravashi hold that it's a Balaschov, but a Mamer himself ended up coming around to Ravashi's opinion and agreeing. 
I was sitting in front of a Meymar. A woman came in front of him. She was demanding her dowry, right? Her, her 10% estate. And I thought his opinion was that he could pay him off. That they could do that. And that's how it seemed. Why? Because I overheard the brother saying to her, that if we had money, we would have asked you with it. We would have paid off with it. And in fact, Amemar remained silent. He didn't say anything. And it was in, be- in this Bezdin that Amemar remained silent. And his silence spoke volumes because it sounds like he did not argue. And therefore, it sounds like he ultimately came around to agree with Ravashi that in fact, the, the relationship between the daughter and Right, the estate is that of a Baal Chov, and it can be paid off with regards to the dowry, it can be paid off with any amount of money. Uh, fascinating, the second toast of Samachtas Amar Aleph, we're falling helplessly behind, without Andrew, the wind beneath our wings. Um, it, it, it bears to, to mention, and this was the Shita that uh, Rari Leibowitz, the great Dafiomi master, pointed out, why would, can, why do we take silence as a Right as a sign that he that Amemar agreed with Ravashi, and Tosfa says in a nutshell that you have to always, when you're in a court of law, speak out and yell when you hear something that doesn't sound like the truth. Right, Rabbi it says, Right, whenever he heard Sheker, he would scream in court, "You are a liar!" And what are you saying? What's the issue? So some of them, fortunately, will say that that's in a court of law. You do not want the Litigants to become discouraged when you hear a bunch of uh, a bunch of nonsense spewed by one of the litigants. That if they see that the, that that nonsense is not being shutting down, not being shut down, they are going to be discouraged. But the Levush, as quoted by R. Leibowitz, points out it's an application of midvar sheker tirchak. It's not unique only to a court of law, but it's in fact in life in general. If you hear right ridiculous nonsense being spewed, right. a person should always commit to the truth. Okay. Midvar Shekhar by the way, does not mean like Uncle Moishi touches it up, never tell a lie. In fact, the uh, Gemara Shavuos points out 16 different things, applications of Midvar Shekhar and none of them are don't tell a lie. It's applications like this of committing to the truth. Did you walk away instead of uh, starting a fight? Oh, so that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, you should always avoid Machlokas. As Gemara points out, avoid lying and avoid Machlokas. Okay, says the Gemara, Vashadamar's Balchov Havari, the Abba or the so it's a fascinating question. This Balchov, so fine. So Amemar and Ravashi are both going to agree that it's a Balchov. But is the, but who's the Balchov? The father or the brothers? Well, wait a minute. If she's the Balchov of the father, then she's collecting from Yasomim, Rashi explains. Well, wait a minute. Collecting from Yasomim, if you're Balchov of the, of the Yasomim, so then, from Yasomim, you also, um, there's halachas where you have to swear, etc. Lamay nafkamina, lamigva labain, nishalo b'shvua, v'ziburus b'shvua. Right, if if you're a balchov of the of the of the father, so then it's it, it goes back on the girl that she would have to right collect bishvua and get the and get the ziburs. So my, what's Allah? Back to Ravina Ravashi. Amazingly, they both became right um, litigants in the in in the same case that they were talking about. Right, right. So the daughter of Ravashi, Mimarbari the Ravashi, was collecting from the son of Ravashi, and Ravina, amazingly, was the one that was presiding over this. So the he's held Bainanis Vishalobi Shvua. He took Bainanis without a Shvua. It sounds like this Balchov was the father. However, when he collected from the son, Ziburis Bishvua, he took 
Ziburis and with a Shvua. So it sounds like he thought that, that she's, so we see that again, she's the, she's the Balchov of the brothers, right? That makes it sound like she's the Balchov of the brothers. So it made a difference which generation you're collecting it from because if she's the Balchov of the father, she's going to be collecting from Yosomim, whether, whereas if she's the Balchov of the brothers, it's as if the brothers, that generation is the Balchov, and therefore the Halacha is different because it can be Zibur's Bishvua. So the Gemara says, Shalach Le'u Nechem Yosef, Zuta Minaharda, that was his name. His name is Runa Zuta of Naharda. He says, When this woman comes to you, Take the estate even from the base of the mill. So he disagrees with Rebbe. He, it sounds like he says the dowry can only come from Karka. That's what Rashi explains. That, is, that the base of the mill is only because of Karka. So Amar Ravashi, No, when we, Ravashi said, we will collect from the rent payable for houses. That is the Amla Debesi, rent. What is, what's the point of rent? The point of rent is that, again, it's rent coming out of Karka, and it's considered like Ilu Mechubar Karka. We have to turn the page before we stop. So Shalach Lei Rav Huna. Huna, Chavrin Shlom. Huna, our friend. Hi. So Kiyasha HaIsa Lekamech, and then he asks the question. When the woman came before you, Agba Yisra Nechsei, so collect the tenth from the estate. So Avyasa was sitting in front of Ravuna, and Amalai, and Ravuna said to Ravshesha, Zil Amalai, go tell Rav Anan, right? So again, the question was of Ravuna, and it was asked in a kind of a casual way. And now Ravuna responds, Tell Anan, and by the way, I'll put you in Kherim if you don't say it in the following exact way. Anan Anan, which is kind of a little disrespectful. Like Anan Anan twice. Should I collect from real estate or from Metaltalin? Uman And also, by the way, ask me another non sequitur question. Which should an Avel sit at the head of the house? Tell me who sits at the head of a house at an Avel's house, which we, by the way, learn is usually the Avel. Be that as it may, so Sheshus did dutifully what Ravuna had asked him. He goes to Ravanan and he says verbatim, because he doesn't want to go in Cherim, exactly the way he was asked. And he said, uh, Anan is a, is a great man. Ravuna verbatim the Rabba. But Ravuna, who's even greater, and by the way, he put me in Cherim, unless I told you the following thing. In other words, Rav Sheshus was a little bit apprehensive about approaching Rav Anan this way, but he said, by the way, you're a great man, let me tell you, but Ravuna is a great, great man, asks me to say this as following his way, at, um, at, uh, otherwise I'll get excommunicated as follows. And then he says, had he not said that I would be excommunicated, I would not have said it like this, but here I go. This is the message verbatim that Ravuna sent. Anan, anan, Uman So he repeated the question. Do you collect from Kakos and Metaltalin? And he asked the question about this Marzecha. So Ukva. So Ravanan couldn't believe this language. Anan, anan. So he goes over to his friend Marukva and Amale. Did you see how Ravuna addresses me? Anan, anan? What's this anan, anan? And also this non-secular question of Marzecha, what does it have to do with anything? So easy. tell me now, okay, as we turn the page at the hopeless time, hopefully we'll get to the Mishnah of, of 623 a.m. What was the actual word? So Amalei, Hachi Bahachi Ava Maisa. He was with Maisa. So Amalei, Murukva said to him, Gavel lo yada mainir Marzecha, Shalach Leirvuna. Huna Chavrin, a man who doesn't know what a Marzecha is. is. So he said, basically, let me see you the letter that you wrote him. And he saw it, and he sees, and the letter he wrote him, he's like, hey, Huna, hey, Ravuna, how are you doing? 
In other words, Anan initially addressed Rav Huna in a casual way. And he says, you don't even know what a Marzecha is. And you're addressing Rav Huna, the great Gadol, in a casual way. That's why he answered you back in this right, disrespectful Anan Anan way. So the Gemara says, by the way, my Marzecha, what is a Marzecha? Uh, we don't know what it is either. So he says an Avel. That's an Avel. In the context of Yirmiyah, it says, don't go to the house of a mourner. How do we know that the Avel, in fact, sits in the head? Which said, I would sit in the head, right? Like one consoling mourners. So wait, that sounds like it's the one who's consoling. Gemara asks, It sounds like the one who's consoling is the one that sits at the head. So Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, Yenucham Ksiv. Now, you have to look at the diktuk, it should be Yenucham, meaning the one who's being consoled, and it therefore is the Avel who sits at the head. Sits at the head. So Mar Zutra Amar Me'achav is Sar Mirzach Struchim. He has a different source, Mirzach. In other words, Mar Vizach Nasisar Struchim. The one who's bitter and detached, he's the one. That's a Pasuk in Amos. And that's how you know that the Avel, who's Mar Vizach, sits at the end. That's why he's called the Mar Zeich. Getting back to the halacha at hand that was asked of Huna, that you get it from Karkos, Ben Lemizone, Ben Leksuva, Ben Leparnasa. In any one of these three scenarios, you're going to be picking it up from real estate and not from Metatalin. Bezat Hashem will resume tomorrow with the Mishnah on Samachtes Amid Bez.